Hi, I'm Alex L., and I write books for a living. The Hey Girl podcast was created with sisterhood and storytelling in mind. Hey girl. Hey girl. Hey girl. Hey girl. Join us as we journey through sharing together. Hey girl. Hey girl. (laughs) Hi, Chloe. I'm so glad to have you on the show. How are you? I am doing so well, especially now that I'm talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad that you're doing good and I'm happy to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming, but before we dive in and, and get started, can you please let the Hey Girl listeners know who you are and what you do? Mm, who are you? It's such a holistic question and I love it, but I'm Chloe Dulce Lubuezo. I like to call myself a storyteller. I like to call myself a creative that supports other creatives or the creatives and others. And I have recently curated a book called Life, I Swear, and it's an anthology of stories, intimate stories from Black women on identity, healing, and self-trust. And it's been a beautiful experience, you being one of the contributors, but it builds on my podcast of the same title. And your podcast is just everything. Life, I Swear is a beautiful collection of stories. And I'm excited about this book Mm -hmm. because not only am I in it, but there are so many (laughs) other amazing women in that book sharing their stories. And I do want to talk about the book, but I also want to talk about how Life I Swear, the podcast, turned into Life I Swear, the book, and where you want this collection to touch people. So I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's funny because the book actually came before the podcast as an idea, as a, like, I committed to the book before I committed to the podcast. And the world wouldn't otherwise know that because obviously the podcast was born May 2020 and the book was just released in November. But as I was collecting stories for the book, the storytelling just felt so juicy. And I feel like some of my biggest revelations come in conversation. And so then as I continued to collect stories for the book, I was like, it's best to capture these. I don't want to hoard these really good, dynamic, rich stories to myself. And Mm -hmm. I continued to collect essays for the book, but then it turned into a podcast because I wanted to share storytelling in a different format, in a different forum, because I think everybody's healing through sisterhood comes in different formats. And so I wanted to make what I was gathering and the perspective shifting aha moments that I was gathering from my conversations with women for the book, I wanted to make them accessible. And then just also make these like introspective conversations we're having with ourselves normalized in our routines, you know, storytelling has always felt like a tool or a gateway to personal healing, because Mm -hmm. as you know, as a writer, you know, just journaling and writing our stories out and asking ourselves how we're thinking about them, interpreting them, internalizing them. What do we want different? What do we desire? Just really writing all of that out as our story and then gaining the confidence in really flexing that muscle of articulating ourselves, who we innately are onto paper. It just 
feels like a gateway to healing. It has for myself. And so I've, I've been doing that for myself in this book. I wanted to welcome other women to do the same. Talk about your healing as a woman, as a mother, as a creative. Where did you find yourself healing the most, especially as you started talking to other women about theirs and collecting these stories for the book? Mm, Healing the most. I mean, I think that I recognize my blind spots. I recognize, you know, while there is so much courage it takes to put my own vulnerabilities, my own insecurities onto paper, and then just share them publicly, you know, in speaking on the podcast. But as it relates to the book, I recognize where I still have blind spots and I want to be enlightened. I want to learn from my sister friends. And I think because I've had a very transient life, I want to say that I've always felt raised by girlfriends. Mm. I didn't live with both of my parents. I lived between many households growing up. And so the closest people to me weren't even my own siblings who lived across the world, but were like handpicked family. And so without always having an authority figure to tell me or to direct me, to guide me, or even nurture me sometimes into the right direction. I've always made my heart available to my peers and other Black girls and and girls of color, now women of color, who can kind of hold me and gather Mm -hmm. my pieces and put, you know, give them back to me, as Maya Angelou says. Um, And so I think what I kind of learned the most in this process was how, while our stories are often, you know, under this umbrella of the Black woman experience, there are very overlapping lived experiences that we have. Mm-hmm. Our backgrounds, where we're, we're coming from, the lenses through which we judge ourselves or judge experiences are different the way we navigate are different. And so in those differences, I've been able to learn how I can mature my own navigation of life. want to know a little bit more about your upbringing. Can you Mm -hmm. share with us what shaped you the most and how you realized or grew to know Mm -hmm. what family and care Mm -hmm. looked and felt like? Mm. You know, it's so funny because you and I have gone back and forth about motherhood and we're like, oh, motherhood. (laughs) I don't, I really don't think that I knew grew to knew what family looked like until I started my own. And that is because my family was very dispersed across the world. Also very, there was a lot of variation between different sides of my family. And then I grew up away from all of my family, really. So my background is I'm half Congolese from the Republic of Congo. I was born in Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Africa. And my mother, who raised 
me as, and I say raised loosely, but she was my primary parent, caretaker. She raised me as a single mother in Niger, West Africa, which is sub-Saharan Africa, landlocked, a very dry country. It's a Muslim country, whereas Congo is uh, mostly Christian and it's, you know, in the thick of the equator. So just the diversity, I think, mattered because Niger is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's agriculture-based and so was just very dry and poverty was something I was exposed to at a very early age. I say my mother raised me loosely because she, for the most part, she lived in remote a remote village called Filenge, which is three hours away from the capital city of Niamey. And so I lived with several families growing up there. And then when I came to the U.S. by myself, I lived with two other families in high school. Mm. So I kind of had this very... Hmm, I felt spread thin between culture and community, between place and family. I felt very much grateful to be in this very rich microcosm of a melting pot, which was an expat community. But then on the outside of those walls of this very privileged expat community, I was very close to the spectrum of economic disparity, for lack of a better word. But I think, you know, I just had to learn very early on how to navigate not just race, being mixed by biracial, bicultural, bicontinental, race, place, privilege, access. Those were all themes that were very top of mind and very prominent from elementary to high school. And so I think that lack of sense of home, you know, being feeling like I, I was familiar with many places, but not from any of them, mm-hmm, Yeah. you know, and I don't think that that's specific to someone who is as nomadic as my life was, but I think that that sense of not belonging or not being able to fit my identity or my sense of self squarely into the expectation or the norms of certain communities that made me adaptable. It made me impressionable as well. Mm-hmm. It made me being willing to compromise my sense of self just for that longing of wanting that connection. And so I think on the flip side, it also made me really appreciate stories. I want to know where you're from, I want to know, and from, I say that not just geography, but where your heart is from, you know, where your spirit is from, how you form your own sense of self. I really like to get down, like straight to those things before chit chat, but I'm like fascinated with where people originate and just the journey of their life and how they've made sense of it. I'm curious to know what motherhood taught you about becoming a home and starting your own family, your own traditions and your own sense of belonging, especially with the type of childhood and upbringing that you had? Yeah, I think motherhood felt like it presented an opportunity, an Mm. opportunity to just design, you know, we design a life we want. We also design a a culture we want to have. And customs and traditions we want to have. 
And we're able to birth those and create those, imagine those when we start a family. And so it almost felt like starting a family with my son was an opportunity to design a life for him that I didn't have. And while mm-hmm. I am just so grateful for everything that I did have and very diverse experiences I was exposed to, the thing that was lacking was stability and security. And while I've always been a wanderlust in my adulthood, I've really wanted predictability as a foundation for, you know, affirming myself really, and being able to have those things as reference points for when the world doesn't make sense. Okay. I have, I have a reference point of where my value lies. And so I've been able to really find that in motherhood. I think there's a lot of um, things that weren't passed on to me when, as it relates to storytelling, a lot of stories, family secrets, unanswered questions, trauma-informed kind of decision-making. I didn't know where it came from, but I inherited it, I think, from both of my parents. And so I want to create this space in motherhood where my stories are his stories so that he can understand who I was before he came around, understand me as a human. I think we often have this perception of our parents that we're not able to humanize them as much until we're older. But I want to make being your full self a safe haven within the family that I'm creating. Because I often found myself, you know, as an outlier, even on both sides of my family. So it's also just been a experience that I'm still discovering, you know, and I think that the answers that I don't have, I think that motherhood has allowed me the space to be able to explore them in real time and give myself permission to do that. So I feel like I've really just grown the most as a woman through motherhood. What did the pandemic teach you about creating space for yourself? And the reason why I asked that question mm-hmm. is because I found myself during 2020 and part of 2021 just trying to reimagine what home and self-love and self-nurturing looked like, especially during a time where life was really mm-hmm. extra hard for so many of us. And I'm curious to know, with you being a single mother and also a woman who's really intentional about showing up for self and community, what it looked like and felt like for you over the past couple of years with creating these intentional spaces for yourself within your own home? Mm, I love that question. And it's so funny, the pandemic and everyone being at home in this last year and a half, almost two years. I can't believe it. I was home for the year before the pandemic. 
April 2019 to April 2020, and then the pandemic hit, and then everyone went home. I feel like I got a head start in a way. I had taken the year without knowing I'd be home the next year. I took the year off prior. I took a sabbatical from work and mental health was necessary and nurturing and tending to my mental health was necessary. I had a really tough 2019 and it was like everything that I thought made sense kind of came crumbling down all within two months. And that was really jolting, I would say. And it came to the point where it felt like the fragility of my peace couldn't have been mended without taking time. And so I appreciate that now we're all in this space of really valuing time and patience and stillness with ourselves. But I think in that year, I for the first time, because I didn't have the pressure of being social and being around folks. And honestly, everyone was at work. So I was by myself during, Mm -hmm. you know, the week hours, but I was able to let myself feel all the feels for the very first time. And, you know, at one point, I think prior to that time off, feeling all the feels, letting my, my emotions, my thoughts really run through me, detoxing the ones that did and being particular about the ones I chose to carry with me. That felt like a luxury before. The time to do that felt mm-hmm. like a luxury. And so we often, you know, just go with the motions and it's hard to be that selective about the language we use or the thoughts we hold, the behaviors we have when we are so busy. So I think I'm just grateful for time. But now, you know, that what I once considered a luxury to do, to be that thoughtful, now feels like such a necessity. And I think a lot of us are thinking in that way. It feels like a necessity for survival, a necessity because we understand ourselves better. We understand what we need to move in the way that God sees us, our highest vibration. And I think me ending that first year at the same time that the world kind of went home, I feel like I was almost a step ahead of many of us who who then had that the second year and a half home because I felt like I was coasting through the pandemic a little bit. And in terms of, I had already done my recalibration, my, you know, got my equilibrium in my first year. And that's when I started working on the book. Mm, What divine timing. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, I mean, it felt so, I, I mean, divine just is the word. It's the word that keeps popping up for me because had I been, under another manager who had granted me permission to take that time for myself. I wouldn't have leaned into community in the way I did because I chose women to identify and connect with for the book, but also just for community based on, I know I'm not alone in said experience and I've had a lot of experiences, but I can't be the only one experiencing this. And Trying to process it in such a silo is incredibly isolating, but I can't be the only one. (laughs) And so I started to just reach out to other women who I know 
had experienced single motherhood, had experienced pregnancy loss, had experienced abusive relationships, mm. had experienced heartbreak or sexual trauma or, you know, this nomadic third culture kid background and the consequences of all of those things on how we see ourselves. I couldn't, there's no way I was the only one. And so I started to really be intentional about really handpicking women like you and so many others. I mean, there's just too many others to count, but that was really my saving grace. And so the book to me is that manifested. It is community manifested when we need it most. I love that. I love Mm -hmm. that so much. As we wrap up our conversation and you think about all the stories you've collected in this book that is so necessary and in these conversations, what would you tell your younger self if you were mentoring her? How would you coach her and lead her if you had the opportunity to do so? I love that. And when I look at the book, I think of it as a love letter. I think of it as a love letter to all of my various selves. Mm-hmm. And so, and to my present self, and I'm sure I'll read it in the future and, and feel like I was also speaking life into her. But when I think about my younger self, I think about all the things I was scared of, which is really that fear of what if I never find home? Mm. Home has been this theme in my life, but because I didn't have it, I didn't know what it really felt like until I found it in myself. But before I did, I was seeking it so desperately in other relationships and other you know, outside sources of validation. And I think all of that was fear, fear of what if it doesn't all come together? What if I don't find my people or my tribe or the thing that grounds me in my purpose? And so I think I tried to do things in a very controlled manner, structured, but also latched on to relationships that I hoped were resemblance of love. I almost like tried to justify them and they were stretches sometimes. But what I would tell my younger self is, you know, I often think of fear. There's two ways to look at really the bottom line is really ambiguity, the fear of ambiguity. It's, and I was talking to an actually, actually I was talking to a, a Howard. I went to Howard um, as my very first book event. It felt like coming home because I I went to, I graduated from Howard. And one of the Mm -hmm. girls was like, I'm so scared of what comes after college. And I think too, in the spirit of, you know, our young twenties, which is when I started having some of these life, I swear conversations where they're mixed with like fear, but also balancing that with the fragility of faith as well. I think, and so she echoed what I think my sentiments were in my early 20s. And my response to her was, don't think of life as being fearful as you're walking through a haunted house. Think of it as the adrenaline of climbing a roller coaster. It's still fear, but instead of bracing yourself so tightly and doing all that you can to control 
the outcome of the monster not popping out <laughs> at you. Think of that, like rechannel that adrenaline, that fear-based adrenaline into almost an excitement, knowing that on the other side, it's beautiful. Like I guarantee you the way God is set up, it's beautiful. You just have to almost be in awe, like channel your energy. I'm like now, as I think about it through that lens, I am excited. I am in awe of the unknown. Like, you know, when you are, it's almost like when you're, you're young and you're dreaming of all the things you could be one day when you grow up, that energy still doesn't leave me, but it, it, I'm thinking of ambiguity from a different lens. And in that way, it feels like a forever discovery and exploration. Thanks for listening to the show today. Please rate, subscribe, and review. Also, feel free to share with a friend. We love having our community grow. Music is by DC's own Kokai. The Hey Girl podcast is produced by Wayne Bertram and me, Alex L. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.